Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The field, perhaps the most qualified in IndyCar history. World Championships in both Formula One cars and sports cars. Seven IndyCar titles, 131 total IndyCar victories between them. Jimmy Vassar, who has won three of the first five races of the season and is the points leader coming into this race, will bring the field up to speed. And we have a crash in turn four. A crash approaching the green flag, and many, many cars are involved. Well, something has obviously gone wrong. Hi, welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. This is Indy 500 week, which means it's a big week for the Brickyard at NBC Sports. We'll have coverage of the 105th Indianapolis 500 at 11 a.m. Sunday, May 30th on NBC. Pre-race starting at 9 a.m. on NBCSN. This also is a big week in IndyCar history, too. It marks 25 years since the 1996 Indy 500, which was one of the most emotional, eventful, and impactful races at the Brickyard in recent years. That is partly because of what happened at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Buddy Lazier won his first Indy 500 two months removed from shattering his back in a crash at Phoenix. The Indy victory made for a fairy tale ending, and it happened on a remarkable day as it was the first race held under the auspices of the Indy Racing League, or IRL, a new all-oval series that had been formed with the Indy 500 as its centerpiece. The IRL had split off from championship auto racing teams, a series that had all of the familiar drivers, teams, and names. Andretti, Unser, Penske, Ganassi. They were all famous because of the Indy 500. Because of a new Indy 500 rule that seemed aimed at limiting the kart series entries, kart chose to hold a 500-mile race, the US 500, at Michigan International Speedway on the same day. That race started with a 13-car crash coming to the green flag. It was nightmarish for Cart, just as Lazier's victory was a dream outcome for the IRL. And it was one of the major flashpoints in the Cart-IRL split, a civil war in IndyCar that would drag on for a dozen years before the series merged under one banner in 2008. This week on NBCSports.com, I've been writing an oral history series about the drama of the 1996 Indy 500 US 500 and the CART IRL split. I did over two dozen interviews for these stories, and I'll be sharing some audio highlights of those conversations during this week's podcast. We're going to start at Indianapolis, 
with a team owner whose four cars were at the centerpiece of multiple dramas in 1996. John Menard's team won the pole position for the 1996 Indy 500 on one of the most dramatic qualifying sessions in history. The team withdrew Scott Brayton's guaranteed time for a last-minute run. Brayton won the pole, but died in a practice crash six days later. Menard still had the car that started first in the race, though, as a relatively unknown driver named Tony Stewart made his debut on the national stage. John Menard also was a part of the 2019 Indy 500 when he went to Victory Circle with Roger Penske as the sponsor for race winner Simon Pagano. And Menard's home improvement warehouse chain has been a racing sponsor for decades, notably on the cars raced by his son, Paul, in the NASCAR Cup Series. John Menard rarely does one-on-one sit-down interviews, but we had him for more than 20 minutes on camera from a studio at his company headquarters in Wisconsin to talk about the 1996 Indy 500. John, uh, Nate Ryan from NBC Sports. I just want to say thanks again for doing this. Really appreciate you making time. I'm working on the story about the 1996 Indy 500, which, of course, you were a big part of that with your four cars. And um, so I just had some questions about that. And just what were your memories of that month of May at Indianapolis and what the race was like? Uh, Because there was so much attention and scrutiny with being the first Indy 500 held under uh, the newly formed Indy Racing League. Just what were your memories in general? Well, we went into the month, of course, with with high hopes and uh, a lot of... uh, Oh, there was a lot of back and forth between us and uh, the cart people. And we sided with uh, Tony and the Speedway and because that's what we did. And, you know, it was it was very emotional from that standpoint that a lot of the people that you really wanted to race against that were not there. And that all went well. Uh, actually, it, it turned out, I think, the Indy 500 carried on a tradition of... Uh, putting on a really great race and a really great show for the fans. For myself, personally, I remember that year very, very well from the fact I lost a, a good friend. And um, uh, uh, from that standpoint, I'll, you know, that'll, that's what I, <laughs> some of the other things that were so important at the time and were important to the sport and, and to history were lost and overlooked a little bit by myself, by my emotional uh, my emotional state, especially at the race. And certainly, uh, I appreciate that answer. I want to talk to you about Scott Brayton. Uh, first, I just want to ask you, John, about you know qualifying weekend, how dramatic it was, your, what your memories were of, of winning that pole position and that, that decision to take that huge risk of withdrawing Brayton's time and re-qualifying to get the pole. Well, you know, we were younger and a lot more foolish then. And, <laughs> <laughs> and we're, you know, but we were there to, to get the pole. We were there because the pole was a huge thing at that time. I mean, it. it I, I think that racing has lost a bit and not making more out of the pole position because the pole position at Indy was probably, uh, you know, 40% as important as winning the race. I mean, it was it was not as important, but it certainly was a, a reason to be in Indy in the month of May. Had a lot of fun doing it. I mean, the fans had a lot of fun. The parties uh, that, that took place around the track and in the track during qualifying was great because you didn't have to pay a lot of attention because there'd be a car running, you'd pay attention to the cars you wanted running. And from a fan's view, it was a great place to drink beer and and, and, and look at the uh, various things that were going on. Um, and so I think we lost something in racing and not having the, uh, 
the qualifying. And of course, we were wanted to qualify on the pole, and uh, we were we got really disappointed when we got bombed. And Scotty came over and he said, "Johnny says I I know I can do it. I know I can do it." And you know, it was probably probably at my age today I wouldn't have done it, but at the time of the disappointment and not and being bombed. I looked at Scotty and I, I, I said, you sure? And he said, you bet out, we'll get her done. Uh, okay, so we withdrew the car, which is probably, I thought, the 30 seconds after I did it, <laughs> I had uh, thought that, boy, this is either gonna be the thing you're gonna be remembered for well, all your rest of your life, or the thing that you're gonna be remembered for being the biggest fool all the rest of your life. and. Uh, didn't know which way to go. We really did not know. We, we had a lot of confidence. I had a lot of confidence in Scotty as a driver. I had a lot of confidence in the team. I knew our second car was just as good as our first car. and But a lot could go wrong. Everything could go wrong. You know, and it was getting, as I recall, you know, a little time pressure. There wasn't a lot of time left. But we did it, and off we went. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things that you do at the time kind of as a spur of the moment decision that you, you just hope will go right later. And uh, and luckily it did. But I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> when, I, when I was going, they heard I was going to probably have to answer questions about it again. After 25 years, I still get a little sweat out of me myself <laughs> just, just thinking about, oh, what did you do? Yeah, that that's one of the most dramatic and historic qualifying runs in Indy history. Does it give you not as much pride maybe as winning the race like you did with Pagano, but close to it? I mean, you're, you're really a big part of Indy history there. Yeah, you know, Indianapolis used to have a different rhythm to the race. I mean, at the time, it was the world's biggest sporting event, bar none, I think. And, you know, if you got the pole, you had two weeks, basically, where you were your team, your sponsors, your driver— you were just the the reigning royalty of, of Indianapolis, and uh, you were the king of Kansas City, as you were, and it was it was it was really a a good thing to win from a from a uh, prestige standpoint. I mean, you got sometimes you got more publicity for winning the pole than you did for winning the race, because winning the race the day after the race, well, you know, more or less things got forgotten. Everybody was packing up, going to Milwaukee or or the next race, and but winning the pole, you you had two weeks of uh, doing this and that. It was and it was fun, you know. It was you got to lord it over all the other uh, teams, and that's what you did it for. It was sportsman, and we were there to uh, to win the pole, and and that's what we wanted to do. So we just went and did it. We didn't really look back much, but I did have my thoughts. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the qualifying speeds then, John, like the 236 miles an hour, you know, still in touch 25 years later. How, how much do you think that, you know, added to the uh, prestige of the pole? How much do the speeds impact that? Well, the fact that that you had to put yourself back in that moment when the cart people were off trying to do whatever they were trying to do, and God bless them, they were, they were doing well at it. Uh, but we really at Indy and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, stole the show with this unbelievable speed. The 236 was crazy. I mean, it was, uh, thank God nothing went terribly wrong because you were in uh, experimental aircraft type happenings. And if anything would have gone wrong, it would have been, uh, could have been a really a, a big deal. And 
I'm very, very proud of the fact that 25 years later, it's still the fastest, you know, that we, anybody ever got a car to go there. So it's something I look back on pride and, and you know, I smile. I wish, I wish I knew then what I know now, but if I did, I probably wouldn't have done it. But it, uh, <laughs> it was really cool. <laughs> Did you feel like you had after qualifying that you were you guys were the class of the field that you were able to have two cars so far? You had four cars in the race and two cars so far up in qualifying. Well, we had yeah we had one and two and uh, we felt very very good about that. I mean we knew we had speed. Um, what we didn't know is how and what came back to bite us was how well we could race. Um, our, our our old Bernard V six was a fragile beast and uh, you know we we had put together all the crews and stuff, we were really basically only going to do Indy. And so everything was just put together through the spring months. And, uh, you know, so we had four teams, four cars. You look back at it, it was crazy undertaking, really. And uh, we had to put together all those people. And uh, I probably underestimated the people side of racing at that time. I was more focused on, wow, we're going to get this thing to really, really go fast. and. Uh, and we did, we got that done, but perhaps on the people side, we had great guys, um, but we didn't spend enough time doing pit practice and coordination and uh, the race strategy that, that the teams do now are, are phenomenal. I mean, they just do such a good job. If we would have had 4% of that, we probably could have won the race. Uh, and then we were, our, our, whole, our whole push or emphasis was on going fast. And we didn't, being, we were young and foolish, what the heck. And we were having fun, we were going fast. But we could have backed off by 5%, 10%, probably stretched all the equipment out, took a little more time in the pit stops. I mean, so if we lost a spot or two, we would have got it back. And if we had been a little more careful, a little more thoughtful, in that respect, I think we would have been untouchable. But but we weren't, you know, we just, yeah. <laughs> Tony was, at the time, uh, you know, very young and very inexperienced and uh, very fast. And he knew one speed and that was wide open. And, and God bless him, that was that was great. But I don't think the car knew that. <laughs> the car couldn't take it. <laughs> so. That was Tony Stewart's introduction to the racing world on a national stage in a lot of ways. How, how did it feel to have smoke behind the wheel of, of your car you know, like getting introduced to America. Well, I, I felt great. I mean, you know, Tony was obviously a great young talent, but at the time, Tony was pretty much unknown. I mean, outside of of the immediate Indiana area, I mean, Tony was not Nelson Piquet or somebody like that, you know, and uh, young, very young, very, very good and fast race car driver. Uh, but yeah. a little bit was hard to reason with Tony as far as, like, we got to go slower. That just wasn't, that just... It just wasn't in anybody's vocabulary back then, including my own. I mean, I, I probably should have jumped up and down and probably done something to the car. Maybe I should have put a bolt under the foot feet or something. So we didn't, we didn't strain things quite as much. But uh, yeah, it, it was great. And uh, you know, he was known as Smoke back then, but mostly he was Tony Stewart. So the Smoke came um, probably more notorious in later years. I want to ask you about Scott Brayton. You know, you, you talked about what a good person he was, and it seems like he was universally admired and loved in the IndyCar world and the IRL world. Then, um, what about him made him such an appealing person to star? Scott was uh, 
this bigger than life personality. I mean, he just started talking to you, and pretty soon he had the whole, everybody in the whole room was listening to Scott because he just was, well, you know, when this, he'd start in and just tell you how it was and, and it was, and tell you a joke and he was entertaining. And I mean, I had more fun with Scott. It was just, it was just great. And if you went along to talk to a sponsor or something, he was the best wingman you could ever have because he, he'd just take over the conversation and be telling stories and, and just, um, he just had this way about him. He was just a, just a big, strong, together guy and uh, he, and he was just what you saw is what you got there was no baloney with Scott I mean it was totally straightforward midwestern yeah. very midwestern values what kind of a driver was he how would you describe Scott Brayton as a driver Scott was um, was very very fast um, and very excitable you, you had to uh, work a little bit on, on, on okay we got we got time let's just slow down Think about this. He'd come in after making a qualifying run and, and as tight as the seatbelts were, and he was a very strong man, but as tight as the seatbelts were, the seatbelts were, he was breathing, and the seatbelts would be going up and down. And then you knew you had to just take a little bit of time and let's talk about this and uh, then go back out again. And uh, But he, he was all about racing, totally uh, devoted to the sport. Going into the race, John, you, you guys went with uh, Danny Angayas as the driver of that car. Yeah, from what I can tell, he was relatively sort of out of the Indy 500 scene at that point and seemed to come sort of out of the blue. Like, how did you, do you remember the details of how you guys decided to hire him and how, how you brought him on board? Well, um, as I recall, you know, I had known Danny for quite a while. He had driven for uh, Ted Fields. And that whole group was, um, how do I say it just right? Because they, they were very nice people. But they were also yeah. very kept to themselves, very private. And uh, Danny was known as the ghost from the coast. And, uh, you know, they'd come in and and you wouldn't even know they were there most of the time. But anyway, I got to know Danny and got to like him. He was a very nice, nice man. And uh, and a very fast driver. Got in the terrible accident. Never really got another chance after that. But we had always kept in touch. We always talked. We'd go over there and sit and talk and about everything. I. I liked Hawaii for one thing, so he'd tell me stuff about Hawaii, and uh, I don't know. We just talked, and uh, so when this all happened, um, you know, I really was going to retire the car, and uh, I, I, Scotty's dad and the crew and everybody kind of convinced Scotty's wife said, "No, that's not what Scotty would want to do," and so I didn't want to put a young guy in there that didn't have respect for the situation, possibly. I wanted a guy in there that, that had been around a little bit and would would show the proper respect for situations. And and Danny knew Scott and lo loved him. So I, I asked Danny if he'd do it, and he said he would. And he, and he wound up being our best finishing car. But he was Danny was a really, really nice man. He is a very nice man. As you mentioned, I, I think he finished ninth, uh, the best of your four cars. Uh, when you look back on the race, what, what do you recall specifically about it You know, I, for, for you and your teams? I know Tony obviously started on pole and, and led 44 laps and had the mechanical problem. Do you feel like it was one that got away? Does, does he win maybe if, if not for the mechanical problem? Yeah, if we wouldn't have had mechanical problems, we would have won. I mean, Tony would have won. Um, if we wouldn't have had some issues in the pits, Eddie had a good chance of winning. Um, 
and Danny had a pretty good chance of winning also, really, but he started in the back. We didn't have the fastest pit stops. Um, there was a lot of confusion because he had just coming into the into the situation, not as good a communication, perhaps, as we had. And But those three cars all had a really, really good shot at it. Mark Dismore was, was uh, uh, driving a little bit more conservative race, but, you know, he ran well. But those three cars, any one of them could have won. If I had a rank, I would have, you know, Eddie probably had a really good chance. We, we, we followed up in the pits, and because uh, you know, Eddie was flying. <laughs> I mean, he, I think Eddie had the fastest race lap ever that's ever happened. Two thirty-eight or something like that. We're running faster in qualifying. It was it was insane. I mean, the race was insane. When you look back at it and think of the things that could have gone wrong at those speeds, you just kind of thank God that there wasn't. Uh, you know, some hor horrible uh, situation that would have, because it was too fast. <laughs> it sure was cool. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was the concern coming in with 17 rookie drivers and faster than ever. Like you would have thought there would have been more calamity. Yeah, but they're good drivers. Almost every single one was a good driver. And you, you just, because we had a lot of, um, you know, it was a lot of work getting in there, a lot of practice time. Um, the, 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 the 90 days of May, they used to call it, which was really, you know, three weeks, um, had a lot of um, time for everybody to get out and practice and, and get better at at what they did. I think that was good from us getting the race off well. Uh, now, you know, with the COVID and everything, nobody's practicing as much anymore in some of the racing. And, and it probably tells a little bit, you know, on the drivers. It must be, must be very difficult on the drivers to have to go out on a track with no practice and just start racing. Uh, tough deal. I was here at Indy in uh, 2019 when, when Pagano won. So here for the press conference with, with Roger, I know what that meant to you. Where does the 1996 Indy 500 in that month of May sort of rank in your long history of racing accomplishments and being a team owner? I'm sure it's behind 2019, but is it is it up there as being like something that you really cherish? Well, you know, the 2019 win with Simon was awesome. You know, the, Roger was nice enough to, you know, I was thinking of going back for the anniversary and everything. Roger was nice enough to come along and this was a great deal. Everything went well. Who um, won the race? What more could you ask for? It almost was too easy uh, from a personal standpoint. 96 was a lot more work. I mean, I was there early and late and everything happened that you can imagine. Uh, so probably 96 sticks out in a, um, we didn't win the race, but it was certainly a more momentous, it was a longer period of time for one thing, and, and a more momentous occasion in my life, if you will. But both were great. I mean, it's like, yeah. you're asking me if, you know, you like this new Ferrari or this new Maserati. <laughs> you know, they're both great. Yeah, going fast in India and doing well, what could be better than that? Yeah, that's great. 25 years removed from the card IRL split. And it, it seems like IndyCar is uh, like in a really good place, heading in a really positive direction. And Roger taking over the Speedway in the, the series a couple of years ago, everything's united. I, I guess when you look back on that, John, like how do you think that period of the split in American auto racing is remembered now versus 1996? I mean, it seems like 1996 is a major marker in US racing history, but it also seems as if a, a lot of what transpired then is sort of been forgotten and people have sort of moved on from it. Yeah, and 25 years later, it's easy to look back and say, 
you know, what were you guys fighting about? And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, did anybody really remember what the World War One was about? You know, it was about something for sure, but, you know, you have to study it. And, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but, you know, really, really that should never have happened. I mean, if, you know, um, because it was harmful, in my opinion, to racing in general. Certainly it was harmful to Indy cars that, that we knew and loved. And, uh, you know, thank God Rogers, um, <laughs> the poor guy, I mean, he takes over the speedway and the COVID hits. And, I mean, he's had everything kind of go in a very, di- he made a very difficult road to hole, right? But, you know, to have one unified force, I think this, you got to give, you got to look at last year as just being a normal year with the uh, disease of the virus. And I think it's going to build and it's going to come back. And there's a rich history of open wheel racing in the United States. And, you know, it, it, there's a lot of people that like it. And I like it. And uh, I think it'll, I, I think he's going to do very, very well uh, at what he does. He, he always does. I mean, who could bet against him? Thanks again for making time and, and revisiting all of this. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation greatly. I enjoyed hearing your memories. And good to see you again after 25 years. Thank you. To hear John Menard talk about Roger Penske is rather fitting, because it brings the IRL kart saga full circle. Though IndyCar has been whole again since the split ended in 2008, many have pointed to Roger Penske's purchase of Indianapolis Motor Speedway and IndyCar as the true endpoint of unification. Because Penske commands such respect across the automotive and motorsports worlds, as well as the deep pockets he has to weather the pandemic, IndyCar seems extremely well-positioned for the future, with a cadre of young stars. But in 1996, it was Penske's Michigan International Speedway that was the site of CART's counter-programming to the Indy 500, though the U.S. 500 didn't start as intended. The field, perhaps the most qualified in IndyCar history, world championships in both Formula One cars and sports cars. Seven IndyCar titles, 131 total IndyCar victories between them. Jimmy Vassar, who has won three of the first five races of the season and is the points leader coming into this race, will bring the field up to speed. And we have a crash in turn four. A crash approaching the green flag. And many, many cars are involved. Well, something has obviously gone wrong. What's our situation right now, Kurt, regarding the use of backup cars for this race? Well, our rules provide that uh, in a situation like this, since our leader did not complete a full lap before we went red, the race will restart in its entirety. That allows all the competitors in the pit lane to reorganize anybody that has damage that requires a backup car. We'll be allowed to put that backup car in its original starting position. We look like idiots now, huh? Why? The starts and a little bit, yeah. He was laughing and so was Tony George. Yeah, I know. Oh, Jesus. Can you believe it? Bad. Oh, God. The three abreast start was unusual for Cart, which typically had rows of two at the green flag. Many thought the idea was to mirror the Indy 500's traditional 11 rows of three. But Cart CEO and President Andrew Craig said that wasn't the case. Well, on, on the issue of three abreast, um, you know, we, it's been suggested this was hubris on on the part of, of on our side, uh, and actually the thing that's forgotten there is we've done exactly the same thing the year before, and the reason we did it the year before was because our promoter Gene Haskett said, "Hey, this is going to 
you know, it's attractive. It's it's a nice, it's an interesting thing, and this would help him sell tickets. So, so sure, we'll do it, and it was just fine the year before. As to what caused the accident, I mean, I I really don't know, quite frankly. Uh, don't want to speculate about it. The, the time is very hard to know exactly who done what to whom, but it was a, you know a typical example of of, of um, uh, you know Constantina basically, where where what one car. Um, succeeded in picking up another car, which picked up another car, and so forth. Um, I was standing on the pit lane at that moment, and uh, I decided to uh, to go back to my um, motorhome and watch the ensuing events on television. <laughs> Card had a lot riding on the race, being a significant counterweight to Indy. Putting up a $1 million winner's prize and drawing a crowd of more than 120,000 to Michigan, as well as securing ESPN as its broadcaster. We wanted this race to uh, to be a statement, so we, we acquired the rights from the family to the Vanderbilt Cup, which is this famous racing trophy from back in the 20s, I guess. Um, we recreated a replica of the Cup. It's just huge. This Cup is just massive. Uh, so we had that for the race, and everything's looking good. We get to race day. You know, We've got television. We've got a great prize fund. Grandstands are pretty full. Uh, life's good. And then the race starts. <laughs> <laughs> or oh, doesn't start exactly doesn't start yeah, and, and, I, and I retreat to my motorhome <laughs> the crash began on the front row with contact between Jimmy Vassar who started on pole and Adrian Fernandez here's the viewpoint of each starting with Vassar obviously everybody remembers the start and uh, it was a disaster we were going to go three wide which was easy to do it just Fernandez you know, I'm, I'm on the pole, so I, you know, everybody kind of goes off of me. And Fernandez, you know, really was crowding my, uh, crowding our car, but it, it was on my right rear. And uh, if you look, look back at it, he just, you know, he hit me, and then I came straight across the front of the field. It was a disaster. It's one of those things. I was in the middle. I was in the front row, and Jimmy was on, on the inside, in the, on the pole, and then Brian was on the outside. And I think the three of us, it's, it's, yeah, you don't, you don't start the races uh, three wide that often. That's one thing. The other thing is that uh, the, in Indianapolis, the, there's a lot of talk about the star, right? And uh, you, the spaces and this and that. And here was not much about it. And I think, to be honest, you know, looking after just so many years, I think the three of us were not just, we're more looking ahead of us. You know, for the start, instead of really looking better, you know, because, you know, you're just waiting for the green flag. And, and I think we just got distracted a little bit. And that's how we got together. And it was just a shame. There's plenty of room. There's more actually, it's a wider track than Indy. It just happened. I believe that looking at it, that we all could have spaced out a little more, but I'm on the pole and, and they're supposed to go off of me, right? And, and Adrian had a lot of room, a lot more room to go to the right to be better spaced, in my opinion, between myself and Herta. And uh, he hit my right rear and came straight across. I don't know if he was looking in his mirror and, you know, uh, I, I don't know what happened. But I don't think that it was the three wide that uh, was the culprit of that. It was just, it was just a unfortunate occurrence. I don't really recall much discussion about, you know, how are we going to do this or it's a big deal or 
you know, we're all professionals. We can go three. I mean, you go three wide in the race, you know, <laughs> at, uh, at, you know, at much higher speed. So I don't, I, I don't really recall, recall much discussion about how we needed to, who needs to be where. I think, uh, Wally Donaldback would just assume that we could handle it. And, you know, it happened. And it was just a shame. And, and more a shame for me was that I was the only driver uh, that could not restart the race. And I was so mad with Steve Horn, uh, my team, because they were preparing their car. My spare car was getting prepared for the next race, and they took everything from that. So I, I was so mad with him. I was the only driver, and we were so competitive, remember? And the Rivero uh, was so strong, and... Uh, and I, I was as strong as him, so we could have won that race. Fernandez was the only driver who didn't restart. In a controversial move, CART allowed everyone else to restart in backup cars while keeping their original starting spots. Vassar would emerge as the winner on a wild day and then deliver one of the split's most unforgettable lines in a nod to the winner's tradition in Indianapolis. You know, we won, we still won as a team, and the team really won this race today, all the hard work we did, and uh, I'd like to thank Chip and, and Bob from Target here. It's great. Who needs milk? And it was really just a tongue-in-cheek joke to my mechanics. Make no mistake, we all wanted to be an Indy, right? It wasn't, it wasn't any kind of a political statement. It was kind of more of a, a joke, and hey, you know, just kind of up, try to uplift the guys. And I think there was a boom. I somehow got picked up on TV. And so then there were almost, uh, you know, there was a, there was a bottle of milk at the gate at the shop when we got back, <laughs> uh, you know, some, you know, some, some tough words. So we, we took it up. We took it up. We had to take that one on the chin. And then I, I think when we went back in 2000, there were some hecklers in the, in the grandstands yelling at me, you know, who needs milk pressure, you know, that this kind of stuff, and so I, I kind of, I think I may, I might have made the joke a few times that uh, my doctor told me I was, uh, I needed a lactose uh, intolerant or something. <laughs> I, you know, I knew that the hecklers were going to come at me on that. Yeah, no, I didn't shut that up. I was really just kind of, it was tongue in cheek, and and uh, it for, for you know, it's kind of make to the mechanics and the guys on the team. Hey, who needs milk, man? We won today, kind of a thing, you know, but. Uh, Obviously, I mean, we all wished we were at Indy, no doubt about it. Hi again, everybody. Brett Haber back in the ESPN studios. We remain in that red flag condition at the U.S. 500. We are going to get you back out to the race in just a couple of minutes, but this gives us an opportunity to catch you up to date on the other big race. There are now two big races on Memorial Day weekend. Of course, the Indy 500 taken over by the IRL. It is about three-quarters complete even as we speak, and we check the leaderboard once again, and still Roberto Guerrero leading the race. 150 laps are in the books. Davy Jones is in second. Buddy Lazier in third. Just radioed. Here Dude. comes Lazier. Lazier charges on down. He moves Absolutely. to the inside of him, and Buddy Lazier picks up the lead of the 500 with eight laps to go. You can see how important it is. There is nothing like the excitement you get at the end of the Indy race. The 1996 Indianapolis 500 is won by Buddy Lazier. Though Vassar's victory lane interview might have been more memorable, it couldn't top Buddy Lazier's triumphant story at the Brickyard for Perseverance. Two months and two days before the Indy 500, a crash at Phoenix fractured Lazier's back in more than 40 places. After 10 days in intensive care and weeks of rehabilitation, he arrived at Indianapolis Motor Speedway using a cane to get around the track. He recently recalled the emotions of the month in an NBC Sports interview. The crash at Phoenix really rocked my world and then I, you know, I broke my back in 40 some odd places. 
and we weren't you know we weren't sure if I would we certainly weren't even thinking about winning the race we were you know I was hoping because I was young and you know healed quickly had a lot of things that went in my favor to be able to just to get to that race um healed to the extent that I was able to qualify and make the race and then really just the way the race unfolded and then being able to actually win it was was really something unique you know a lot of things had to go right for that to occur but it was it was a very very probably one of the crazier two months I've spent in my life you know because talk about going from low to lows to high to highs you know I think I was in the ICU for roughly two I don't know 10 days or so and then flown back to Colorado in an ambulance airplane to continue my recovery in the Vail Valley. And we have a, a group here called Stedman Hawkins, which they do a lot of, um, they've done a lot of the world-class athletes when they have to have, you know, a knee redone or something. They've, they, this, it's a very special to, a specialty portion of the Vail Valley Clinic. Uh, so we had some very special people that were, that helped me recover from, from that injury uh, that just happened to be based in my hometown in Vail. So we had a guy by the name of Brock Walker who had done seats for custom seats for uh, the Air Force and for a lot of other things outside of racing. And he built a custom seat for me, which also uh, helped enable me um, not being, you know, I was healed, but not, you know, still recovering from that injury. I think it was eight weeks after we started practice. And then uh, by the time the race came around, it was 10 or 12 weeks after breaking my back in that many places. It was, you know, there was no time to be wasted for sure in the process of healing to get there. And it was great too, that the team believed in me enough to, you know, keep the seat for me open. A lot of things went really right. Anytime you win at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, it's a very special thing. Uh, but for me, it was an, it was accumulation of a lot of years of uh, hard work uh, to get there. And then, you know, after that, uh, we had a really strong streak after that. Uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of top five finishes, a championship in 2000. So that uh, that win also helped provide for me, you know, to lengthen my career for quite a bit longer. While Azir's career gained a certain measure of validation from the Indy 500 victory, there are many stars from the same era who didn't because they essentially were locked out of the world's biggest race during the prime of their careers. Michael Andretti, Alex Zanardi, Paul Tracy, Jimmy Vassar, it's a long list of big-name drivers whose resumes are missing a Borg Warner trophy. Vassar won the U.S. 500 that was held the same day as the Indy 500, and he would follow with two more 500-mile victories in Fontana, California. That at least proved him capable of a win at Indy, where he still finished fourth twice in nine starts. Everybody likes to talk about, oh, you know, the split, and uh, do you feel like you got cheated at all because you, you know, and I, and I, you know, I didn't, but but I, but I, I won three five hundred milers in that time period, not just that one that day, and that during the spirit split, I won three of the big ones, and they were all big money races, and I don't feel like I got cheated, but it, you know, it certainly. To win three 500-milers, maybe I would have won one of the 500. It was tragic for some drivers when it, it makes a career or doesn't, or, you know, you did all this, but you never won Indy, you know. And I've always thought maybe I, I should, I could have won. I got a second. I got three wins and second and goal positions, and just never one of them was Indianapolis. 
there are 500s in million dollar purses, but not on the board Warner. Right? We had what they called the package in during that time, the Reynard Honda Firestone. You know, I would have, I would have definite good chances to win that race. I mean, I won three 500 milers during the split. It was all, I qualified on the pole a couple, two, three times and I got a second place. I think I would have definitely had a shot at winning one of them. And that, but you know, can't cry over spilled milk. <laughs> Besides, Vassar got to taste victory without tasting the milk in 2013. That's when Tony Kanaan won the Indy 500 in a car co-owned by Vassar. But, you know, people say, oh, you never won the 500. And I, and I, and I, I always think, well, bullshit. I won with Tony Kanaan as an owner. Chip won the 500 and Roger won the 500. So I won one too, right? Just wasn't behind the wheel. Yeah, I jumped on the side pod and rode into victory circle with Tony and there's that thing, well, you never won the 500. I was kind of, yeah, no, I never did. But then everybody else on the team, that's how they win. If you're not, the just because you're not behind the wheel doesn't mean you didn't win it because it's a team sport. It was a good feeling to, to, to really, you know, be part of that win. Who else might we have seen in Indianapolis's victory circle if the split hadn't happened? Well, seven-time NASCAR Cup Series champion Jimmy Johnson's rookie season in IndyCar might have occurred much earlier than 2021 if the tumult of the mid-1990s hadn't sent him to stock cars. I know somewhere right around then is when I was told by the folks at Chevrolet that they were not going to be in IndyCar racing. And if I wanted to have a future in motorsport, I needed to move to North Carolina and figure out stock cars and how to drive stock cars. So that, that when I look back on, on that year and, and really kind of 95 as well, um, it was a transition year for me. Granted, I was still racing off-road and not in a position to, uh, to drive on the blacktop yet, but I was trying to find opportunities with teams and with the manufacturer that has had done so much for me, and all of that was changing. So, uh, you know, that was kind of a critical point in time for me when I look back on my journey in motorsport and I thought I was heading towards open wheel and, and off to stock cars I went. Do you think if that split doesn't happen, I, I, Jeff Gordon has talked about this. I'm sure you know that he might've gone IndyCar instead of Cub. If not for that split, do you think maybe you might've ended up in IndyCar a lot earlier? I, I think so. I mean, that was really the direction things were tracking. Um, Chevrolet had me in conversations with Trans Am teams, with Indy Lights teams, and things were, were really ramping up and, and heading that direction. So, you know, it's hard to say if it would have worked out because when I look back at my cup transition, if it wasn't for the Herzogs and racing their off-road trucks, been in ASA stock cars, then to Bush Grand National and then to cup. So I don't know how the road would have would have laid out and if I would have ever made it or not. But, yeah. um, you know, all things were definitely focused on open wheel um, through the mid-90s in, in my career path. Imagine if Jimmy Johnson had been drinking milk in Indy instead of kissing the bricks like he did as a four-time Brickyard 400 winner. Well, the good news is we still might get to see it in next year's Indy 500, when Jimmy Johnson might be making his 230-mile-an-hour debut. And this is Jimmy Johnson in the Carvana Honda for Chip Ganassi Racing. Thanks for listening to the NASCAR NBC Podcast's special Indy 500 edition. If you enjoyed hearing about the history of the split and want to hear, read, and see more, I've got a few recommendations. I'd highly encourage watching the four-part YouTube series about the IndyCar split that you can find on the NASCAR Man History channel on YouTube. And also check out John Orjewicz's new book, Indy Split. Both are excellent retellings of a pivotal era in IndyCar. 
I'll be back soon with the return of the post-race edition of the NASCAR NBC podcast. And as always, you can leave us a rating and review if you like what you're hearing. And please send me feedback on Twitter at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.